Winter has finally descended on Europe. At last, we have snow here, and Christmas is only a month away. Hard to believe. What a year. Hello and welcome, one and all, to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. It has been a heck of a year, hasn't it? So, here we are. Again, winter has descended, and North America seems quite cold from everything I'm seeing. You know, Saskatoon, where my parents are from, has been freezing the last few weeks, the last I checked. So, anyways, there is snow on the ground here in Europe, and just in time for this European oil ban that is going to take effect on Russian oil, apparently on December 5th. So these sanctions are going to take hold, in theory, in a couple of weeks. And also, I was just looking at Javier Bloss's Twitter feed, of course, the author of The World for Sale and one of Bloomberg's main commodity guys, and he retweeted Stephen Stapchinsky, who said that Russia may cut natural gas supply via Ukraine from next week. So you wonder, I mean, based on the timing, at least, it seems like maybe Russia is trying to discourage this ban, perhaps. Stephen Stapchinsky continues, the Ukraine pipeline is important because it's basically the last functioning Russia gas supply route to Europe. Gazprom said some gas meant for Moldova is being held in Ukraine, so it may need to curb supply. I guess impending doom and turmoil has just become the normal state of affairs this year, hasn't it? I mean, it's kind of always that way, isn't it? But it does seem a little more so this year, as it does every year. But before we hit Christmas, we have another mega event. The Canadian Mining Symposium is happening next week, November 28th at Canada House in London, at Trafalgar Square, right beside the National Gallery there. So hopefully I can sneak out at some point and catch a few masterpieces at the National Gallery there. If you've ever been there, it's just room after room of famous paintings that you've seen in books and posters and everything there. So if you are going to London, you would be remiss to miss the National Gallery there. Headlining the conference is Sean Boyd, Executive Chair of Agnico Eagle, Phil Baker, President and CEO of Hecla Mining, Ira Thomas, President and CEO of Lucera Diamond, who I will be interviewing, and Nadine Miller, VP of Cybersecurity and Operational Technology at JDS Energy and Mining, who I will also be interviewing. So it should be a ton of fun. If you listen to the podcast, do feel free to reach out to me if you go to the conference. It's always fun to hear from people. So that is happening in a week. And also we have the Mining Legends Speaker Series, which is going to happen on November 29th, also at Canada House. And that is going to be the following day. And there, I am going to be interviewing Frederick Bell. So it should be a lot of fun. So that is on the radar here as we go into this winter of just one heck of a year, isn't it? Looking at the markets, let's just take a quick look here. Gold is at 1746 so pretty standard. Silver looking healthy, over $21. Copper at $3.64. U.S. 10-year bond at 3.769. So I'd say, I don't know if I'd call that well below 4% with all the volatility out there, but significantly lower than the 4.5% we saw earlier. And the U.K. 10-year is at 3.149%, so it has come down dramatically. And oil itself has also come down. West Texas Intermediate is at $81 and Brent crude is at $88.48. Again, a remarkable spread there. And people are wondering what's going to happen with the price of oil once these European sanctions come into effect. Could it hit $200? Some people feel it's actually going to be very bearish as the economy slows down. And we haven't even talked about crypto which is kind of in almost a panic state, which is almost experiencing its own Lehman, really, with contagion happening. Now, first it was FTX exchange, which was massive. Again, getting Tom Brady to you know promote the exchange at the Super Bowl doesn't really get any bigger than that in American advertising. You know, FTX stadium, all that being dismantled. And now it looks like 
Genesis and the Grayscale Trust, you know, Bitcoin fund is now being called into question. So could be interesting. I mean, I think a lot of crypto people would just love to get past this whole, you know, darkness. So, you know, could be at an interesting time in digital assets, whatever digital assets actually survive. Coming up in today's podcast, we have a very interesting discussion. I'd almost call it ESG 2.0 because in a lot of ways, we've all been hearing about ESG for years now. But at the last Global Mining Symposium, there was an ESG conversation that I found particularly helpful. And I think, again, I would call this ESG 2.0. You know, the conversation is evolving and getting more sophisticated with time. And as we know, like it's not going away anytime soon. If anything, it's becoming more and more entrenched. When we first started talking about ESG, you know, several years ago here, it was kind of a newer concept that kind of still was being felt out and kind of still being sold to the industry. Now, as you're going to hear in this panel discussion, you're going to just hear how it's really just a part of the company from the ground floor, so to speak. And it features Jean-Marie Clouet, Corporate Director IR for Agnico Eagle, Stephen Crozier, Vice President of Sustainability for No Rant Resources, Kevin D'Souza, Chief Sustainability Officer for Resource Capital Funds, and Pierre Graton, President and CEO of the Mining Association of Canada. And Pierre's mic was a little off, so you might hear kind of like a few, you know, a little word here and there that kind of disappears that I had to get rid of because of distortions. But you can understand what he's saying, and for the most part, it's fine. The discussion is moderated by Stephen Theban, Managing Principal and Mining Sector Lead at SLR Consulting. So it is a real cutting-edge discussion here. Again, ESG 2.0, and the title of the panel is called ESG and Mining, How to Make ESG Meaningful. So with that, we have some really interesting news stories to get to today, and also a CEO Spotlight interview with Chris Frostad of PurePoint Uranium, for his second CEO spotlight here on the Northern Miner podcast. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to PurePoint Uranium President and CEO Chris Frostad for this week's CEO Spotlight. Joining us today, I'm very pleased to welcome back Chris Frostad, President and CEO of PurePoint Uranium for this week's CEO Spotlight. Chris, welcome back. Thank you, Adrian. It's good to be back. Well, it's great to have you. And Uranium is, you know, it has its league of investors that are very enthusiastic. So I'm sure they're always looking for that next exploration company that is coming down the pike. So tell us about PurePoint Uranium and what's going on at the company. Sure. Well, Pierpoint Uranium is a, uh, a uranium exploration company. We are located in uh, northern Saskatchewan, Canada, an area called the Athabasca Basin, which is home to the world's highest grade uranium uh, discoveries. And uh, it's been quite an active place. Every time uranium takes off, uh, it gets very busy up in northern Saskatchewan. And we have a, a fairly large portfolio of 12 projects across the basin, all strategically located uh, on trend or in adjacent to a lot of the major discoveries that have been identified up there as of late. And it's uh, exciting to be back out there with a the drill. I imagine. I was on your website. I mean, it is a remarkable amount of projects you have there. So do you focus on one in particular? I imagine you must. Tell me about that. We have 12 projects, actually. And most of them are 100% owned. They're on the eastern side of the basin along the major uh, mine trend, which is where all of Canada's uranium comes from. And then we have two joint ventures with Cameco and Arano on the western side of the basin, which are adjacent to uh, a couple of the monster finds that have been identified in the last uh, 10 years or so. We've got three projects that we're drilling right now or in the, in the pipe to be drilled. And then the others we have spent over the last year a fair amount of time Kind of bringing them up to a drill ready state so we can we can get working on them shortly as well uh, but certainly the the influx of capital and excitement in nuclear again has made it possible for get us to get out there and work all of these projects quite aggressively so you are drilling then uh what are you finding have you gotten any results yet or is it still in the pipeline 
not quite yet, but we started drilling at our Red Willow project in September, which was a, an area that we had identified uh, quite a broad area of uranium mineralization in uh, back in January. It's an area that we've been back then we found close to a mile actually of of uranium mineralization, and we have now been trying to figure out where the sort of the, the boundaries of that is so that we can get more detailed in between. But uh, it's it's obviously indication of a fairly large regional mineralization event, and uh, our drills are up there right now poking holes in that to see where uh, see where the edges of that are. The other project that we're drilling, and uh, the drill actually is on the move right now to go up there, is at our Turner Lake project, and uh, it sits adjacent to ISO Energy, which last July released a, uh, a resource estimate of close to 50 million pounds of uranium at an astounding uh, 34.5% ore grade, which makes it the highest grade deposit in the planet right now. So we are just off of that. The trend uh, carries across the northern part of our uh, project, and we are uh, getting a drill up there to see uh, whether that joy continues on to, into our world. You know, that is so high grade, it almost sounds dangerous. Do you worry about that at all? <laughs> It it is it is dangerous and it's uh, or it can be. I mean, you have to be careful. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of safety regulations and uh, safety management required when you're drilling uranium to, especially when you're hitting hot rock like that. Usually, you've you've got a separate core shack where you're dealing with hot rock, if you will, and uh, it it just requires mm. a lot more care and attention to make sure nobody's ingesting the stuff because that's when it really gets dangerous. So you also mentioned Cameco and Orano that you're doing a joint venture. So tell us about that. I mean, that sounds pretty impressive. Yes, the uh, joint venture we have with Cameco and Orano is on the western side of the province, the western side of the basin. It sits adjacent to and on trend with NextGen's aero deposit, which is a little over 250 million pounds, and uh, Fission's triple uh, R deposit, which is a little over 100 million pounds. So it's uh, it's quite a it's really opened up that area in recent years, and it's certainly a priority project for Cameco and Orano. We are the the operators on that project and have been for some time. And we just recently had our joint venture meeting where they approved the our proposed drill program for the coming year. So we'll be up there with a drill in January and uh, probably be drilling for a month or two in that area. Yeah, it sounds like the wheels are in motion with the whole, you know, uranium space in general. So you've been drilling Red Willow and Turner Lake. You have the joint venture with Cameco and Orano coming up. So what else do we have to look forward to? I mean, it sounds like quite a bit is going on already. Is there anything more? Or We have, again, another, another nine projects. And uh, last summer, we spent a, a fair amount of effort doing airborne geophysics over a number of them and really now identifying drill targets. So in the coming year, depending on the results we see right now from Red Willow and Turner, we'll be making decisions as to where where else we start drilling uh, in the winter besides Hook. It may be some of those projects, but they're all really ready to take a drill. So I mean, we are also in discussions with a number of companies about uh, partnering with us on some of those projects, those earlier stage projects, because right now as as capital is available, it's important to us to make sure that we're advancing as many of these as quickly as possible. You can't find uranium unless you're poking a drill in the ground. Yeah, absolutely. And as far as uh, the regions that you work, like how are you doing with communities? How is all that? Because sometimes that's a concern for investors. They want to know how is the community side of things? There are a number of communities in northern Saskatchewan, uh, very differing ones from the east to the west. We've been uh, working in Saskatchewan now for over 15 years. And because of our, our projects do span the province, we have found ourselves in communication and constant relationship with all of those communities. So we meet with them on a fairly regular basis. We let them know what we're doing, what we're up to. Once we have that relationship, it turns into more of a, a them reaching out to us when they need to, they want to know what's going on in the area. Because there's been so much activity in, in northern Saskatchewan with, with the uranium boom again, they're a lot more active. They want to talk to more people. There are a lot of people wandering around up there that they don't know. So we're not necessarily at the top of their hit list, but uh, it, it is, it's an ongoing relationship that we, we have to maintain and, and honor as we get up there and do, doing the work we do. And we do, I mean, we hire a lot of folks from up in the north, we, we utilize uh, their services up there. They've been set up there for quite some time. 
So they're making sure that they're they're getting the communication they need and their concerns are being heard and uh, and and met. And so as we wrap up here, what is your takeaway for investors here or what is your message that you want them to know? Well, I think, you know, every time we have seen a um, a bit of a boom or an uptick in in uranium spending, we've seen a, another another discovery and the discoveries just keep coming in that area of the world. I think uh, right now, because of our portfolio, the number of projects we have, the number of good projects we have that were they weren't just grabbed up the last minute. We picked these up quite some time ago, and during the downtime, we picked up more. I think we've got a, a great portfolio, and we're working them aggressively right now. Our partnership with Cameco and Arano is is very positive. They uh, they can't free up budget for project exploration project. They don't think that can deliver at least 100 to 150 million pounds. So. We know that they're fully behind uh, our Hook Lake project, and we, we've got a we've got a, a large amount of experience over the last decade or so on uh, exploration right across the basin. So I think right now, from a from a value prospect, uh, we're all about exploration. Our value proposition is is making a discovery, and I think we've you know we're maximizing the likelihood that we're going to be making that discovery at least one uh, over the next little while. Well, with your portfolio of projects, it seems almost inevitable, especially in that part of the world, that you're going to find something special. But who knows? I guess we'll find out in the coming weeks and months. Chris Frostad, president and CEO of PurePoint Uranium, thank you for joining us on this week's CEO Spotlight. Thanks, Adrian. And if people want to learn more, they can find PurePoint Uranium at purepoint.ca and on the Venture Exchange at PTU and on the OTCQB at PTUUF. And we'd like to thank once again PurePoint Uranium for sponsoring this week's episode of the Northern Miner Podcast and turning to the website U.S. Military to Assess Canada Critical Minerals Projects for Funding but none approved yet. So this was quite interesting because, of course, we saw Canada with its heavy-handed forcing of Chinese interests to divest from Canadian mining companies, as far as I understand that story. And then shortly thereafter, the U.S. military sounded like it was interested, but none have been approved yet. So let's take a closer look at what's going on here. This is by Colin McClelland, at the Northern Miner, Canadian battery mineral miners and explorers are sniffing around hundreds of millions of dollars in potential funding from the United States military, but there are no firm deals yet to take advantage of an alliance dating back to World War II. The concept of the U.S. funding projects in Canada to help sidestep China's control over lithium and rare earth element processing broke into the open this month at a conference in Washington, D.C. Some companies say they've been aware of the initiative for years. And we have a quote from Christopher Grove, president of Commerce Resources, which operates the Ashram Rare Earth Project in northern Quebec, who said in an email to the northern miner, quote, Canada is a resource-based economy whereas the U.S. is a manufacturing-based economy, this should be a perfect marriage. It sure should be, shouldn't it? You know, truer words were never spoken, you know, I think to myself. Like, continuing in the article, there appears to be a new urgency under the Biden administration as it says it faces looming threats from China to national security through minerals needed for green energy and the wider economy. In March, it used the 1950 Defense Production Act, Title III, to give the Department of Defense increased powers to help miners and explorers secure supplies of battery minerals, such as lithium, nickel, cobalt, graphite, and manganese. They are also seeking REEs used in much modern technology, from weapons to mobile phones. The Defense Production Act has $750 million U.S., to fund projects after measures approved in a law passed in August for tax breaks on electric vehicles made in North America and a Ukraine aid package in May, Lieutenant Commander Tim Gorman, a spokesman for the Secretary of Defense, said in an email on Wednesday. So Colin McClellan is getting to the sources here. Great reporting. So nothing has been funded from the sounds of it, but it sounds like there is a lot of potential there. I wonder how that works as far as getting, you know, Chinese state-owned enterprises to divest, like who buys them out if they divest or do they just sell it on the open market? Like, I'm not sure how that works. Turning to our next story, this is Reuters via mining.com. U.S. Republicans aim to shorten EV mine permitting 
after house win. So interesting, not all mine permitting, just electric vehicle mine permitting, but that should be almost all metals. Republicans will seek to boost American production of lithium, copper, and other electric vehicle metals after the U.S. midterm elections gave them narrow control of the House of Representatives and the power to influence how regulators approve or deny mining projects. The party on Wednesday was projected to have won at least 218 seats needed to control the House when the new Congress begins on January 3rd, a narrow victory after more than a week of vote counting. And we have a quote from Representative Bruce Westerman, an Arkansas Republican who is poised to become chair of the powerful House Natural Resources Committee. Quote, we need to step up our mining activities if we're going to have an electrified economy. And he continues, we're not talking about gutting environmental laws. We're talking about making environmental laws work so we can protect the environment and have a strong and vibrant economy at the same time. Westerman said he had spoken with Senator Joe Manchin, a West Virginia Democrat and the chair of the Senate Energy Committee, about permitting reform and is, quote, hopeful that it's an area where we can work together. And the head of the National Mining Association in the U.S., Rich Nolan, said, quote, we're optimistic that the oversight function will be robust and that the Biden administration will comply with legal statutes already laid out. So quite a technical statement from the National Mining Association. And Representative Pete Stauber, a Minnesota Republican, said, quote, we want the politics to be out of the permit review process and let the facts, the science, and the truth be the determinant as to whether a mine moves forward. Sounds very promising, doesn't it? And finally, a quote from Westerman, quote, my first goal would be to develop the resources we have here at home. So very interesting story. So we have a development here on the Russian aluminum LME story. This is also from Reuters via mining.com. Alcoa backs Russell's call for LME to reveal origin of all metal stock. So I guess the LME is not 100% transparent on the origin of all its metal stocks and both Alcoa, who tried to kick Russell out of the LME. So both Alcoa and Russell are agreeing in a call for the LME to be more transparent. So if we look Closer here, it says U.S.-based aluminum producer Alcoa supports an idea proposed last week by Russian producer Roussel for the LME to provide details about the origin of all metal in LME-approved warehouses. Aluminum producer Roussel and Russian metal have not been directly targeted by sanctions imposed on Russia after it invaded Ukraine in February. But Alcoa has actively campaigned to ban Russian metal from being traded and stored on the LME. It is concerned that large amounts of aluminum in the LME system could distort pricing. The LME, after an industry consultation in October, decided there would be no boycott of Russian metal as a significant portion of the market was still planning to buy it next year. Instead, the world's largest and oldest forum for trading metals said it will publish regular reports from January 2023 detailing the percentage of Russian metal stored under warrant in LME warehouses to provide transparency. But Roussel has called for the LME to start regularly disclosing the origin of all metal stocks on warrant rather than singling out Russian metals. And it sounds reasonable, doesn't it? Alcoa said in an emailed statement to Reuters, quote, we support proposals that would provide market participants with more data, including monthly reports that would disclose the origin of all metal stocks on warrant. The important issue at present is to ensure that the market has increased visibility on Russian origin aluminum which will allow both the LME and market participants to carefully monitor the situation. Well, it'll be interesting to see if they do that. I mean, I don't see why they wouldn't. But if they decide not to, it would suggest there is another story that lies deeper there, isn't there? So let's see what they do. The drama is not over at the LME by any stretch. And we have another story from the Northern Miner, Valet Inc.'s nickel deal with GM. That could be worth $760 million a year, also by Colin McClellan. Industry giant Valet has landed its first large-scale electric vehicle battery deal in North America, supplying nickel to power a slew of General Motors cars and trucks, the company said on Thursday. The deal for 25,000 tons per year of nickel works out to about $762 million per year, using a September average metal spot price of about $30,500 per ton, though both companies declined to state the agreement's dollar value in a joint news release. They called it a long-term deal, but didn't say how many years. The nickel is to come from Valet's proposed plant at Béconcourt, near Trois-Rivières, Quebec, 
a first-of-its-kind facility for Canada and North America, Valet said. It will wind up in electric vehicles such as the Chevrolet Silverado EV, the Cadillac Lyric, and the GMC Hummer EV pickup. The supply will outfit about 350,000 electric vehicles per year, the company said. Nickel deliveries are planned to start in the second half of 2026. You know, where are all these cars going to fit? Already our streets are in gridlock. Again, I'm kind of reduced and maybe I'm just the odd person out on this whole conversation, but this endless production of vehicles, I mean, our roads are packed. Do we need millions of more vehicles on the road each year? I'm not sure. Anyways, that's beside the point, isn't it? And we have a quote from Deshni Naidu, Valet Executive Vice President of Base Metals, who said, quote, The proposed nickel sulfate project would utilize high-purity, low-carbon nickel from our Canadian refineries and is a natural extension for the business. The deal offers a, quote, fast entry and anchor point into the North American electric vehicle market. So big deal, GM and Valet on battery metals. And here's another story. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. Volkswagen delays key EV project as Tesla challenge stumbles. And it says here, Volkswagen AG's ambitious push to supplant Tesla as a global electric vehicle leader is running into trouble. CEO Oliver Bloom plans to push back the key Trinity battery car project from 2026 towards the end of the decade because new software won't be ready in time, according to a person familiar with the matter. You know, when you hear Kathy Wood talk about Tesla, that is one of the moats that she sees Tesla having over other car companies is the software. I've heard her say that. The company may also scrap plans for a $2.1 billion EV factory in Germany, the person said, asking not to be named because the discussions are private. Well, yeah. I mean, who's going to start a factory in Germany right now? I mean, sad to say, but so even Volkswagen is scrapping plans for a new factory in Germany. The delays complicate Volkswagen's bid to catch up with Tesla and lay bare the challenges of overhauling Europe's biggest automaker from retooling factories to fixing buggy software that has frustrated drivers of its electric cars. And finally, we have a quote. Volkswagen, quote, is currently taking the opportunity to look at all projects and investments and check them for viability, end quote. The company said in an, in an internal message to employees seen by Bloomberg. Construction for the new plant near VW's sprawling Wolfsburg facility was due to start next year with First Trinity models rolling off production line from 2026. The decision to add a brand new site was part of former CEO Herbert Deese's bid to become more efficient and produce EVs faster. It's hard to imagine this has anything to do then with uh, energy. And also you wonder, does this have anything to do with people not being able to afford to buy cars right now? Bloom's overhaul, quote, could improve free cash flow at Volkswagen, but potentially delay electrification and crucial product launches, according to Bernstein analysts led by Daniel Roska in a note, adding the carmaker should brief investors, quote, sooner rather than later, end quote, on any strategy changes. And finally, a couple of stories on strikes. Union at Saskatchewan Mosaic Potash Plant seeks mediation for higher wages, also by Colin McClellan. At the Northern Miner, a union representing workers at Mosaic's Potash Mine in Esterhazy, Saskatchewan, says it has filed for provincial mediation after negotiations for higher wages broke down. Some 750 workers at the site, about 230 kilometers east of Regina, have been without a contract since February 1st, Dan Bailey, union representative for Unifor Local 892, said by phone from Regina. Quote, cost of living is a concern. The employer is certainly in a situation, if you just review recent quarterly reports that they should be able to work with its employees and assist in dealing with the increases in, to the cost of living, end quote. The Tampa, Florida-based company this month reported third quarter net income of $842 million. Mosaic said it spent $1.6 billion so far this year buying back its shares. And finally, BHP tries dodging strike at Escondida Copper Mine in Chile. This is by Cecilia Jamazmi. BHP has reached an agreement with unionized workers at its Escondida copper mine in Chile, the world's largest, in a last-minute attempt to avert a strike planned for November 21st and 23rd. The deal with Sindicato One 
which represents more than 2,000 workers, must still be approved by members of the union, which have been called to vote on it today. And this was from November 21st, so yesterday. BHP said the proposal outlined the implementation of, quote, a series of productive measures, end quote, that benefit workers and the company. The company, which runs Escondida, said the document was the result of dialogue held in the past weeks. Members of Syndicate One announced last week they were ready to down tools on November 21st and 23rd due to multiple non-compliances, infractions, and violations committed by BHP. The world's largest miner has denied such claims, saying it was always operating the mine following, quote, the highest standards of occupational safety and risk prevention. In 2017, Escondido workers staged a 44-day strike, the longest in Chilean mining history. The labor action caused the company $740 million U.S. in losses and meant a contraction of about 1.3% of Chile's GDP. So you see how important copper is to Chile's economy. And finally, just a few headlines here. Canada, quote, very unlikely to join OPEC-like group for nickel, according to a government source. This is Reuters via mining.com. I'll just read the first couple of paragraphs here. I guess this is pretty unsurprising. Canada has not committed to establishing an OPEC-like organization for nickel-producing countries with Indonesia and is, quote, very unlikely, end quote, to participate in any such group. A Canadian government source familiar with the discussion said on Thursday, Indonesia proposed talks with Canada to establish the organization in a meeting between Investment Minister Balil Lahadelia and Canadian Trade Minister Mary Ng on the sidelines of the G20 summit in Bali earlier this week. It's a little surprising that they think Canada would actually go for that. A source said Minister Ng did not commit to exploring this collaboration at this time. It is very unlikely we will be doing this, joining an OPEC-like nickel group. Officials expressed high levels of reservation about the Indonesian proposal. Yes, that would be the shocking headline of the century. If Canada was to join an OPEC-like nickel cartel with Indonesia, the world upside down, perhaps. And finally, a couple more headlines. Silverheads for the biggest deficit in decades, according to the Silver Institute. And that is Reuters via mining.com. And another story... Platinum deficit expected in 2023 after bumper surpluses, according to the World Platinum Investment Council. And that is also Reuters via mining.com. And with that, those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on November 22nd, gold is trading at $1,742.06 per ounce. That is $34 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $21.07 per ounce. That is $0.76 lower. Then last week, platinum is trading at $995.27 per ounce. That is $39 lower than last week. And palladium is trading at $1,874.40 per ounce. That is $208 lower than last week. So big drop in palladium. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $3.65 per pound. That is $0.18 cents lower. Then last week, aluminum is trading two cents lower at $1.07 per pound. Lead is a penny higher at 99 cents per pound. And nickel is at $11.27 per pound. That is 53 cents lower than last week. And tin is at $9.87 per pound. That is 28 cents higher than last week. And cobalt is unchanged at $23.25 per pound. And zinc is unchanged at $1.36 per pound. Zooming out, it looks like metals are taking a breather after the big jump from last week, but not doing too bad. Just a small breather here. And tin is even higher, so showing some little bit of stress in the tin market, perhaps. Otherwise, taking a breather from last week's 
big gains. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, the thought leadership presentation from the Global Mining Symposium, ESG and Mining, How to Make ESG Meaningful. And it features Jean-Marie Clouet, Corporate Director, IR for Agnico Eco Mines, Stéphane Croisier, Vice President, Sustainability for Noront Resources, Kevin D'Souza, Chief Sustainability Officer for Resource Capital Funds, and Pierre Graton, President and CEO of the Mining Association of Canada, and it is moderated by Stephen Theban, Managing Principal and Mining Sector Lead for SLR Consulting, and they take us on a cutting-edge discussion on the latest ways mining companies can think of ESG beyond just the greenwashing and to really making a part, really, of the company structure. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. term ESG, uh, which stands for Environmental, Social and Governance, has become very popular recently. However, taking care of the social and natural environment is not really new in mining. Developing and following guidance and providing governance is also not new in mining. So if the panel could opine on what has mining done to move the ESG needle forward so far? Mining has always been criticized, but you know we all think it has done uh, a, a lot on the ESG front to date. Kevin, would you like to share your insights and, and, and thoughts? Yeah, I think, I, I, you know, we've been, I've myself been involved in what we now fashionably call ESG for, for 30 years. And look, uh, I've made lots of mistakes in my career and constantly readjusting. And ESG boils down whatever way you want to break it down into doing the right thing. It's never really been extracurricular for the industry and certainly not new. But I think... All of us working in industry will say that, you know, I, I couldn't compare it to other industries, as you said, but, you know, what we've done is really great. You know, we've seen most of us how firsthand on countless mine sites, how responsible mining practices are really transformative. You know, they can lead to improvements in social well-being, environmental stability, you know, well beyond the life of a mine, which is also important. And through direct operations, you know, mining companies generate tax revenues and they improve the investment attractiveness of the country generate employment locally and um, across the country and stimulate economic growth. And when they partner well with governments and civil society, those benefits again are great. But here's the but. ESG is much more than just securing these permits or producing these glossy annual reports or competing for these woefully misinformed ESG scores. I think we've made tremendous gains in the industry, but as you rightly said, I think, um, Stefan, the needle is moving and now faster than ever before. And I think we're seeing an unprecedented sort of surge in sophistication on ESG issues. And I think we're in the midst of a true industry sort of transformation. I think the sort of performance and the disclosure bars are being raised all the time with an increased focus on different ESG themes that we weren't even seeing really on our radars up until a few years ago. You know, diversity and equity inclusion is one that's really come full speed and really quickly. Look, some companies and their boards may choose to procrastinate or debate all this, you know, keeping their heads down, thinking about how it's always been. Others may spurn or, you know, kind of shoot the metaphorical messenger like myself. But I don't think any of this is going to stop the paradigm shift from happening. I think we've got to really hope that, that most companies stop the sort of short-term thinking, writing how much they give, and, and really moving on from that outdated CSR approach, hoping to do the right thing, you know, cutting ribbons and kissing babies, really moving way on into the sort of new way of doing it. Otherwise, we're going to be really criticized for greenwashing. And I think the forward-thinking companies that we're seeing now are really doing it a lot differently and really making sure that that, that ESG is, is, is sort of built in, not just bolt on, and have a sincere desire to sort of protect their sort of shareholder value. And I also think, just to Pierre's point, the good companies that we're seeing are adopting these recognized performance standards, whether they be towards sustainable mining, but also things like the copper mark, responsible gold mining principles, the ICMM, all of these. And these things tend to strengthen company-wide operational excellence, build resilience and attract the best talent. And then they become attractive to investors like us. So, Steve, what are your thoughts on, on, on what mining has done? Where, 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 where do we stand now before we start thinking about the, the, the future, Steve? Yeah, it, certainly. I, so, you know, I think to pick up on uh, some points that, uh, that Kevin made, you know, the industry has, you know, sort of been at this for, for quite some time. 
However, uh, what is is also true, is, as Kevin is pointing out, is the expectations of your coverage in terms of the issues and challenges, as Kevin is saying, ESG is really about doing the right thing. Uh, I'd say the scope of issues that are expected to be covered within a, a call it a robust ESG program is, is one that continues to evolve. And some of those pick up trends that are unique to the industry. Some of them pick up general trends that are of broader societal interest. And while it is the case that we have been at this for a long time, it is certainly the case, I think, that we've done very good work in a number of areas. And I know now it's considered, in a sense, really just a standard uh, for the industry. But looking as an example as to the orientation of our industry uh, with respect to health and safety and the seismic shift uh, that has occurred over many decades to institutionalize uh, an awareness of safety of risk and distributing that awareness through the organization so that really at every stage it's something that is, is is part of everyone's role and i cite that as an example because i think partly what we see is additional priorities have been flagged and added to the scope of issues for which an appropriate response is expected within call it the esg domain and the degree to which we have advanced our implementation of uh, processes or practices that can help us do the right thing, I think are at different levels of maturity, even though we have been, I think, working very actively in a range of issues. Uh, but these are, many of them are complex, but I think each of those issues really needs to be addressed kind of directly to understand what elements are we trying to manage? How are we improving either our handling of impacts or implementation of programs to fulfill other objectives that are not simply about limiting impacts, but about broadening the positive benefits of our industry. And I think part of the challenge that we have is for the uninitiated, there is a temptation within the ESG space to kind of reduce the effort across these really increasingly complex domains into digestible data points, which is fair enough uh, to provide a reference point for measuring the performance of a, of, of a given proponent. I think the challenge is, is that in some of these areas, they're not easily reducible to very simplified data points or milestones. And really part of what has made, I think, our progress so meaningful and returning again to the health and safety example, but it, I think it's broadly true of much of the work that we do, is the importance of moving away from, call it a milestone-based uh, understanding of what we're trying to do on ESG. Like I think in the, in the context of, say, permitting, there's often a, uh, a focus on, well, we need to do an ASHA. We have to get our EA through the system. And there's frequently a mistaken assumption that an EA, uh, that assessment is something you do once and then you're, you're done, where I think truly best practice in the industry, and I think this can be applied, you know, sort of uh, analogously to other elements within the, call it the ESG uh, domain space, is it's a process. It's a process that you start and you never stop. Even once you get your EA decision statement, the discipline continues. That's what made the progress possible that we made with respect to health and safety. And that's the same orientation I think we need to take to all of these elements. It, the milestones are important, but it is the process and the depth of its implementation that ultimately moves the needle over time. You know, one can say that ESG is not about report writing, it's about being a good neighbor and doing the right thing, right? And that, that can't always be documented every step of the way. Reports are part of it, but they, they shouldn't be mistaken for the whole. Jean-Marie, what's your perspective from a larger uh, operator? Clearly, you have seen things change over the last few years, but uh, you know, Agnico Eagle has always been at the forefront of, of ESG, no matter what it was called. Maybe you want to provide a bit of an oversight from, from your perspective, Jean-Marie. So I agree with a lot of the points that have been made, really. And, and I like what we said about doing the right thing, because that's exactly how we present it. When we meet with people at the end of the day, that's how we explain it. Like ESG comes back to doing the right thing. Uh, that has changed over time, that we have to realize that, that the, the, the society, the rules uh, have changed over time and, and the mining industry has changed accordingly and has been very often ahead of, of, of those changes in the rules. And I think that's still true today. One point I want to highlight probably uh, among the, uh, the, the points that have already been made is really the social aspect. We've talked about, you know, the contributions that the industry has done over time. If we go back, like Northern Ontario, Northern Quebec has been built uh, because of mining, because of forestry. That is true today uh, when we see in uh, Nunavut, Agniquigo uh, represent about 30% of the economy in Nunavut, uh, bring a lot of jobs, training, 
helping develop suppliers. I think that's one of the key roles of the industry. When Stefan talks about, you know, we, we try to reduce ESG very often to a few metrics, we, we've seen that like very often, like uh, when we talk with uh, with banks, uh, with people who are invest, we're trying to kind of analyze where we uh, are we doing. They're trying to say, okay, which are the key metrics that I really need to follow? At the end of the day, the, the way we look at it for us, what's key is that social acceptance. A mine has a mine life, of maybe 15 years, 15, 20 years. Uh, what we want is to keep operating, to be able to keep build a second mine, build a third mine in a region where we are. We need to have a social acceptance. That means doing the right thing. That means being partners with the um, with the communities, with First Nations. And really the industry has something special to, to, to give because when you consider mining, forestry, energy, uh, these industries are really in contact with remote communities uh, with First Nations. And when we talk about reconciliation, this week it's, it's, it's the truth and reconciliation. Mining has a key role to play. These communities are our partners. Uh, we need to build and develop their right to have prosperity also. And, and we, we contribute to that aspect and we have to do it right. And we have to do it in a partnership and at a very early stage. Those are really the, the key things when we think about, about ESG. Let's start thinking about the future, right? We've established mining has done a lot of things. Is uh, you know is trying to be a good neighbor. Um, I think the uh, you know participants in this in the symposium would really like to hear your opinions. Where are things going? What are trends? Uh, you know, if you were to decide what all mining companies do in the future on this ESG front, what would it be? What exciting things are, are coming? Pierre, maybe um, you know, sort of from your perspective as leading an association that has provided a lot of governance to to the sector and continues to do so. What are your thoughts? Where, where are we going? What's next? A couple of thoughts. And one thing, and then this is no longer emerging, and in many ways, you know, we led the way. There's been a sort of a recognition now from many of the standards that have emerged, but it, we were the first uh, through TSM, that this ESG matters on the ground at the site level. And, you know, Jean-Marie was just speaking about that, and Stephen was making that point, that this is... For, to really talk about and, and measure and be, be accountable for ESG, what matters is what's happening, your operations are, and how are you managing those aspects. And our initiative was always site-based. Many, until really the last five years, were overall sort of corporate accounting of various metrics. And they didn't either A, serve to drive change because change happens on the ground. And they weren't really designed that way. So now I think there's been a, a coming to the Jesus moment where everybody says, oh, yeah, I guess that's how it's done. Uh, and, you know, where I sit, I said, well, we told you so. Uh, but that's, that's just me being, being cocky. Another emerging issue is one Kevin R uh, referenced, which is diversity and inclusion and equity. I mean, it took Black Lives Matter to bring it to the forefront, I suppose. Uh, but it's been sort of in the background for a number of years. In essence, as a human resources challenge in part. We continue to be an industry that is heavily male-dominated, yet we face an acute labor shortage. The answer we've known for a long time is to try to change that equation. And we have struggled as a sector to do that. It's not just about gender. It's about it's about certainly in the in it's about visible minorities in the Canadian context. It's about indigenous inclusion. It's about LGBTQ. It's about all of these factors now that have sort of risen to the top of the list. What's also changed is we have some examples, industry leading examples like BHP, which made a very public commitment a, a few years ago to achieve gender parity within the company within a. a I forget, I forget by what year, is it 2030? But in a, in a very aggressive time frame. And many in the industry scoffed, we'll never do it. But in the short time, the short number of years since they made that announcement, I think they're now like up over 30% from where the rest of the industry was when they started in the, in the teens. When you actually want to change, you can't. BHP has sort of shown the rest of the industry, yeah, it's doable. It's sort of also led us uh, at Mac and uh, prompted us at Mac 
to start our own process of developing a new suite of indicators focused on equity, diversity, and inclusion as part of TSM. And I know Kevin has contributed to that as, uh, as well as probably Stephen and others and many others across the industry. It's been one of the most involved processes that we've gone through. Uh, in, in, in fact, it's involved you know, partners from, from around the world. Feeding into that is the Rio Tinto report of earlier this year that looked at you know, sexual harassment in the workplace and all those issues and how those are obvious barriers to not just attracting but retaining. All of that is feeding into you know, the identification of what are those policies, programs, what are those things that we have to have in place to make meaningful change so that we can have the work, workforce of tomorrow. Kevin, what are, what are your perspectives? I mean, what, what is hot and next uh, and, and, and what's your vision on, on ESG and mining going forward? I haven't got used to being called in the financial side. It's only been four months. I'm still an <laughs> operator at heart. So, you know, I won't go that far and say, um, but I'm enjoying it. And my operational background helps me. So, look, we could talk about these mega trends that Pierre talked about, indigenous communities, waste management, biodiversity, closure, DE&I, which I'm hugely passionate about, as you know, greenhouse gas emissions, all of these collectively are helped with that sustainable value creation. But what I think is more fundamental underlying trend is the changing view of ESG from being a back office risk management exercise. And hopefully the misperception that embracing ESG isn't about compromising you know, the precious quarterly returns or being a, a sort of trader from profitability. So for me, I think the next level is gonna be defined by companies maturing from what I would call an inward looking risk mitigation, do no harm, you know, check the box mindset to an ESG value creation mindset. And that means adopting recognized industry performance standards we've all talked about for both performance and disclosure importantly, that are relevant to their unique stakeholders. And these are gonna be different from every different company. And to do this, I believe we need to overcome what we call, I call maybe defensive sustainability. It's primarily motivated by value protection and driven by risk management. Look, the risk management mindset works well in mining for many of our functions but it can make you myopic when, it look, when you're looking at ESG because you tend to focus too narrowly on just monitoring negative impacts on the immediate environment and a few communities, and you don't really pay enough attention to value creation. And this could be with respect to any of the themes we mentioned. I'll, I'll just give you one example, if I may, and that's to, to demonstrate the need for societal purpose, that S in the ESG. This entails objectively questioning what is truly a social license, which we always love to talk about. To do this, I think you've got to acknowledge the difference between a social license to operate and creating social value through strong ESG performance. Look, a social license is solely about benefit to a company and the desire to secure this acceptance from them to operate. In my entire 30-year career, I've never ever once heard a community request a social license or celebrate its existence. Whereas creating social value is about that equitable benefit sharing, maximizing procurement, employment, and being that true partner in a community and creating that value. And I think in the near future, I really do expect to see community and indigenous community equity uh, in, in mining projects. That's true partnership going forward. And that's where I think this new ESG approach is fundamentally seen as creating that sustainable culture, not just financial. But I always love to carry out it. This is going to require competent boards, competent management that have ESG knowledge, wisdom and fortitude. It requires that hands-on ESG expertise to achieve success on sites, as Pierre said. It cannot be directed from isolated sort of units or, you know, armchair ESB experts who have sort of gone to a few conferences or Google ESG. It needs to be built from the ground up on mine sites, and it's got to be more than just the compliance. And look, this is just one example of the next uh, level, I think, about yeah. true longer term performance. It's stability, value protection, systematic ESG governance across all disciplines, not just the ones you hear about, but everything from HR all the way through and embracing ESG as a business imperative. It's, it's really about having it fundamentally at the core, as I said, understanding how your business interacts with the rest of the world. That's what ESG is about. And then you'll be addressing the expectations of a much wider audience, communities, governments, employees, lenders, and investors alike. Brilliant. Well, follow that up, Steve. What are your thoughts? <laughs> uh, sure. I mean, I very much agree with what Kevin uh, is, is saying in terms of the shift in prominence uh, for ESG in terms of the level at the organization uh, that it now comes in at and, and really the importance of embracing it from the perspective of not just risk mitigation, but value creation. I think the main, one of the bigger trends that I would uh, focus on, at least for this discussion, 
uh, which I am seeing, and it, and it goes back to a point that Pierre was making about um, the, the site-specific uh, orientation of uh, the, the TSM framework. And, and I think it, it's uh, yeah, how you're contrasting that with the sort of typical kind of disclosure regime under most securities laws uh, frameworks, which has been, I think, ported over in a sense as a managerial uh, screen, a screen for uh, managerial attention, and it's around materiality. And I think we are heading to a collision of these two worlds, the, the need for asset site receiver community-specific data that measures very accurately what is it you're doing in a particular context, at a particular location, on a particular element, regardless of whether that data might pass a sort of a disclosure review uh, from a materiality perspective. It's not helpful. I think it is actually harmful to approach ESG disclosure issues and generally uh, prioritizing sort of managerial attention and focus on the basis of materiality in the ESG domain. I think it, it, it needs to be taken into account, but taken into account differently. What I see in the future is an increasing need, not just for the interests of those that care about uh, the performance of a given company on ESG, uh, but as well for in the interests of management. We are going to see, uh, I think, an unending trend towards you know, much fuller transparency and specific data streams, regardless of whether or not somebody wants to put something out there for materiality reasons or otherwise. And I think that reconciling that, we are set up for a, a collision here, which doesn't have to be, uh, you know, a destructive collision, but there is, there is a tension here that is percolating within the system. And I think the sooner that it is explicitly addressed and recognized the materiality lens and what it means for securities law uh, disclosures and what's happening in ESG and how to constructively resolve them with a view to doing the right thing, seeing ESG as foundational, not just for risk, but value creation, I think will be better positioned as industry to fulfill the increasingly heavy burdens, the expectations around what is ESG means and what it should cover. Uh, but I, in my experience, both within the companies that I've, I've worked at and, and, and others I've engaged with, I, this is, this, there is still a, a big tension here. And I think the reluctance to be more specific and more transparent at sites is currently not helping. And I think the sooner it, it is addressed, the better, because I think it's inevitable that it will have to be addressed. Yeah, it's sort of the, the feeling that communities feel, you know, the company is doing something behind their doors, behind the fence that we don't know, right? That needs to be broken. Thank you very much, Steve. Jean-Marie, from your perspective, where do you see things are, are going? What are, what are the trends? Well, how would you like to see ESG develop in, in the context of, uh, of Agni to Ego? I liked a lot of the way that Kevin was presenting it in the sense that we, we do see ESG as an opportunity really to improve your business. And, and the way to look at it, really, it's uh, when we talk about partners, uh, communities, local employment, that's something that I think the industry believes in. And we've just been through a pandemic where, uh, you know, the, the sites or the operations that are expats kind of struggle to really to maintain those sites operating when, while well, the ones that really had local teams operating, local supply, like uh, were much better positioned to, to, to go through through that event. So that, that's an example of where really we see ESG as, uh, we're talking about ESG, but really it's again, something, a way of doing business that, that has been helping uh, and, and, and supporting the industry. We talk about like a lot of it these days, what we hear from, from investors, from partners and the stakeholders that we have, it's about climate change and climate action. And, and what do we do for it? What's key there is like, again, we can see benefits in, in working towards there. So we talk about what can be done, the electrification of the equipment. That's something that we think will really be benefit for an operator at the end of the day. Yeah. If the source of the uh, of the power is green, the electrification will help us. In an underground mine, you, when you have diesel equipment, you need to push a lot of air. It's a lot of energy. You can actually reduce costs. But there's a transition to be done, and there's a work that needs to be done, not just with the industry, but really with all the partners, including government. That needs to happen at a societal level. And I think we need, we're part of that, and, and we need to be part of, of that of that movement and, and make those changes. I think Stephen and, and, and Stephen and Kevin talked a lot about the alignment you know, through the company. Uh, we need to see 
much bigger alignment probably between the board, the management, and the sites themselves. And I think that that is happening. The ESG component that needs to be done really happens at the site. And we have to make sure that it is understood at the management and at the board level what is needed, what support is needed to, to really get there. If we look at tailings uh, with, with the, the, the new standards, like uh, companies need to have an uh, engineer of record that reports directly to the board that really uh, assures that the, the, the standards are followed and the sites are safe. So that, that, that's, I think that's going to move forward quite a bit more. The compensation needs to be aligned better. That, that's another aspect that we get asked very often. That, that those are all aspects I think are moving. Uh, I'd like to finish maybe with what Pierre was saying with the diversity. I, th I think that it's it's a key element. Uh, as we said, like, you know, we realize the industry is still male dominated and, and there is a big opportunity to go and, and add new uh, labor and workforce to the industry. And I think that's that's an aspect that really work towards that to, to really improve the situation and, and, and try to bring in new people to, to the industry. That's the future for the industry, like to, to be able to, to, to continue to, to operate effectively and add new talent and new innovation. We, we need that. We, we need to be, to be effective and then really add new diversity to, to the industry. As they say, ESG has to be more than compliance, and the needle is moving faster than ever before. So if you thought that everything had been said and done with ESG, as you can see, it continues and develops. With that, thank you once again for joining us on the Northern Miner podcast. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory, share it with your friends, and until next week, take care.